in Psalm 133, verse 1 and 2, what we're looking at is a, uh, an, an object or a substance in the Word of God called the anointing oil. So if you've been here for the past few weeks, uh, we've, been, we've been going through our series on the holy anointing oil. It is a six-part series covering five ingredients. This is the end of the series. This is the, uh, the denouement. This is the, this is the correlation of, of everything that we've talked about concerning the anointing oil. So uh, I'm believing God that this is going to make an impact. We're going to review very briefly the other four ingredients, talk about the fifth ingredient. But before we do that, uh, for those of you that might have missed or if this is your first time uh, during this series, I want to explain to you why it is imperative that we understand what the anointing or the anointing oil is. So let's go to Exodus chapter 30, verse number 23. In Psalm 133, when we're reading the description of the anointing oil, I want you to keep in mind that the word says there that when brethren dwell together in unity, it is just like that oil that ran down the beard of Aaron. Aaron being the high priest, we understand that that oil would be the anointing oil described in Exodus chapter 30. So you're going to see why that's important here in just a second. Everybody say unity, unity. Equals, equals oil. oil. Exodus thirty twenty three. Take also unto you principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, of sweet cinnamon, half as much, 250 shekels, of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, of olive oil, one hen, and you shall make an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, it shall be a holy anointing oil. So there's, a, there's so much that we could explain as to why this is important. I'm going to try to run through it as quickly as possible, and I hope it makes sense to you in the long run. Um, there's a certain way to study the Word of God. I would say that it's in my opinion, but I feel like it's more or less fact. Uh, we understand when we open up God's Word that we're looking at what we call an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? Theologically speaking, the Old Testament is considered the New Testament concealed. What that means is when Jesus Christ was walking around uh, the face of the earth and the area of Israel and all the, the Holy Land over there teaching what we now consider to be the New Covenant, he had no New Testament Bible to teach out of. He only had the Old Testament to teach out of. He took the Old Testament and what was concealed in there that nobody could quite figure out until the Messiah came, he revealed it and the revelation of what was concealed in the Old Testament became what we understand now as the New Testament. This is the reason why your Old Testament is so thick and your New Testament is so thin. Because it took a lot of words, time, and experience for God to, to take everybody through piecemeal, step by step, as to who he was, who they are, what he expects out of them, and what he promises back to them. And then at such a time, 4,000 years after, approximately after the first man and woman, that he would deliver his only begotten son to tell us now. Physically, this is what I've asked you to do, Old Testament. But I am a spirit, says God. So I'm going to give you my son now to reveal spiritually what that means and how you approach me in the spirit. But Jesus Christ told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if I speak to you about earthly things, physical things, and you cannot understand these things, how could I possibly ever teach you about spiritual things? So Christ, I think, made a point, and that's just one scripture many different times, to tell us this was the point. This is how he taught. So in Exodus chapter 30, we're looking at one of the physical things that God gave in order to teach us a spiritual or New Testament lesson. To kind of prove that point and drive it home, I want to point to, uh, behind me, Ted's going to put a slide on the screen. How many of you consider yourselves to be Christians? Not a trick, it's not a trick question. Raise your hand, loud and proud. Amen? 
All right. Neil, are you a Christian? Very much so, sir. There you go. All right. We're excited to be Christians this morning. However, if you've called yourself a Christian, you may have unwittingly said or unknowingly proclaimed, maybe not even knowing what the word actually means itself, that you are anointed. So maybe you've known that, maybe you haven't. There is only one translation for the word Christ. Christ is not a last name. Jesus is a first name. Um, son of Joseph would have been how they pronounced his entire name. Um, Christ is a title. You would say Yeshua Bar Yusef if you want to do a, a Hebrew first and last name. But the title would be Christ. And that's why we call ourselves Christians. Christian means disciple of Christ or little Christ or little Christian. And the word Christ has one meaning, one connotation, one interpretation. It means anointed. So if you've called yourself a Christian, you have declared that you are a little anointed one. Remember in the New Testament where Jesus said, all the things that I have done and greater shall you do? It's not because you're perfect or sinless or that you ever could be. It's not because you could ever approach the holiness or righteousness of God. It's because he had a certain anointing upon him. And he said, whenever you accept me, I'm the bridegroom and you're the bride and everything that I have, I'm given to you and my body is going to heaven. So now you are my body on earth and I'm going to transfer my anointing via my Holy Spirit onto you. And so with that anointing, where there was one of me before, there's eventually going to be millions of me with the same anointing. So as I reproduce myself a million times over, greater things shall you do. Does that make sense? It's really just math at the end of the day. Greater things shall you do than I have done because the anointing is the same. So if you've ever called yourself a Christian, you've called yourself anointed. Therefore, it would behoove us to sort of have an understanding of what it means to be anointed. Amen? I'm excited this morning. I'm excited to be called anointed by God. If you're not excited to be called anointed by God, maybe you have not discovered what the anointing means. But have you ever read scriptures and just wondered in your head, like how crazy they sound? Are they possible? When Jesus Christ said, these signs shall follow they that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and the sick shall be healed. You know how that happens? It's not because we rub NyQuil on our hands right before we touch you. It's because the anointing of God is available. And the anointing can heal your infirmities. When he says they shall cast out devils, I know that's foreign and it sounds crazy. And we don't use those terms. Whatever you want to say to cast out spirits or, or give you a sound mind. Whatever makes you feel comfortable, I'm not sure that he's concerned with how comfortable you are. But the way that you lay hands on somebody and cast out a demon or a devil is not because the devil's ever going to be scared of you. It's because of the anointing. Amen. So when he said you shall speak with other tongues, that's under the anointing. When you shall interpret tongues, that's under the anointing. These signs shall follow they that believe. If you want to have the testimony that the apostles had, you have to live the life the apostles lived. And they lived an anointed, dedicated, committed life unto their Lord and Savior. And they believed via the Holy Spirit that they had the ability to walk in that anointing. The, the, the greatest apostle that ever lived after Paul himself was a man named Smith Wigglesworth. Funny name, serious sandwich. That's Schlatsky's, but funny name, serious, serious man. This guy, um, he literally, they documented resurrections in the teens and 20s during his, not, not, not secondhand stories if we think this happened, documented. Now, he, he is uh, of European descent, but he came over to America for a little while in the late 1800s. And where he set up shop, and I can't remember exactly what state it was in, uh, I haven't read his story in a while. But I know that where he set up shop in America for a small period of time, 
This is back when it was okay to, to, uh, to, to have news coverage of Christian events and things of that nature. They uh, declared a 50 to 100 mile radius around his ministry, uh, the healthiest portion of the United States while he was here. Because the anointing was that strong. They said his feet never hit the pavement. If he woke up in the morning and left his house, there would be no less than 50 people that would get saved that day. Via whatever God did through him. The stories go on and on and on. I wish I had time to tell you more stories because it's, it's amazing. But you should just Google him, study him, Smith Wigglesworth. And when it came down to finally people were like, hey, Smith, you know, you're getting on a little bit in age. We've seen your ministry. It's been amazing. We don't understand how you do what you do. Can you write something down? Can you teach some other people? Can you help us reproduce whatever is in you? And he sat down to write a book, and they were expecting deep theological things. They were expecting, I don't know what they were expecting, Hebrew and Greek and, and puzzle pieces and amazing mysteries to be revealed. And, of course, you know, that's kind of how we're geared, and we love diving into the Word of God. But when it comes to the power of God the only thing that he could figure out how to write was, I mean, it's a whole book, but all it really says over and over and over again is just believe. Just believe. And they said, what do you mean just believe? Well, I happen to believe that the anointing of God is available, he said. And not only do I believe it, but I believe that it can always do what Jesus Christ said it could do. He approached healing, he approached ministry, he approached miracles without any fear or trepidation. And I can say that to you, just like I'm saying it right now. It doesn't mean that when somebody walks up to me and says, I'm sick in my body, I have cancer, I have whatever, I want you to lay hands, and I want you to pray for me. And heal. It's, not, it's not as easy as saying it to actually do it. There's a place you have to get to, and I'm not here to proclaim that I'm there. If I was there, probably church would be bigger, because it could save 50 people every day, and by now we'd have a lot of people. Let me just try that. But the point is, when he sat down to write, that's all that he could say. Just believe. I just really believe it. I just believe it. So a lot of us, we believe in God, but how much of God do we believe in? That's the question. So we've called ourselves anointed. I want to take you to a scripture, Philemon, uh, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. And then we're going to go through our review real quickly. Did you know... That you can do all things. You can do all things. What was your New Year's resolution this year? You want to lose weight? You can do that. You want to become more educated? You can do that. You want to learn a foreign language? You can do that. You want to get a better job? You want to get a promotion? All those things are possible. Do you want to walk closer with the Lord this year? That's a great resolution. You can do that. You can do all things. All things. Now there's... A multitude of different ways if you want to approach that promotion at your job you can you can use the people below you as a stepping stone or a ladder you can step on their heads you can uh, kiss up to the boss you can make up stories you can finagle around you can you can you can circumvent you can try to do your best to lie cheat bribe and steal the way that a lot of the world does it to get all the way to the top and the Bible says the children of this generation are wiser in their generation than the children, or the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. What that scripture means is uh, they figured out how to use the world system to get what they feel like they need. But there's another way, and it's the Christian way. But it's difficult for Christians to ascertain because of a lack of understanding of scriptures like this. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. 
Now, initially, you would maybe think or maybe you've been taught that you can do all things through Jesus, but that's not what it says. It says you can do all things through Christ. Maybe you've been taught that's a person, but if that was a person, it would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The fact that it says I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me points to an object and not a person. But you might not have ever understood that Christ is not a name, it is a title. And whenever you interpret that title, what it says is, I can do all things through the anointing which strengthens me. That's what it means. The anointing and the anointed one. Now, that doesn't take Jesus out of the picture. You don't get the anointing without him. But it's not enough just to approach him and say, I believe in you. And this is what I need. Can you do it for me? He says, no, no, no. The kingdom of God is within you. I'm glad you believe in me and I love you. But I'm delivering my anointing to you. And I want you to go do it. I'm not going to necessarily do it for you. But I gave you the tools. I gave you the ability. I gave you the power. Now, if I can uh, quote Smith Wigglesworth, just believe. Get out there and do it. That's the anointing. The anointing has five ingredients, as we read about in Exodus chapter 30. There's so much, there's so much going on in, in, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 23 through 25. There's so many different ways to, uh, to look at it. There's a lot of numbers involved. You see five right off the bat because there are five ingredients. But if you notice, one of them is 500 shekels. Two of them are 250 shekels, and another one is 500 shekels, and these all are on top of the base. Because the base of the anointing oil is oil itself, it's like the, uh, it's like the understanding that uh, you can't define a term using the, the, the word itself in the definition. So if you're going to try to define the anointing oil, some people take the oil itself out of the equation and only look at four ingredients, because the oil is understood. Now, for all intents and purposes, of course, there has to be five ingredients, but four is also a substantial number in the kingdom of God that we could preach a whole sermon on. But what I want to get at is when you take the four ingredients, but they're 500, 250, 250, and 500, if you put the 250, 250 together, you have the 555, which is 500, 500, 500, which is five repeated three times. So you see the number five repeated, five ingredients, 555. But also in those 500 shekels of ingredients, you see them divided into three portions which represents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So part of walking under the anointing is understanding the fullness of God, that you are made in his likeness and his image. He has three manifestations, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You are a triune being, body, soul, and spirit. In other words, if you want to walk in the anointing of God, that anointing needs to be upon your body, it needs to be upon your soul, and it needs to be upon your spirit. That means he needs control of all of you. So you have those three parts that mirror each other. You have the four parts, and of course, four represents uh, unity in, in the physical realm. And there's it's just it's so it's so much to go through. But let's just focus on one four: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four gospels. So that four represents the physical unity of the story and the testimony of Jesus Christ that you need to be all in, so to speak. And then five represents a unity in the spirit, the fivefold ministry, the five bars in the temple, uh, the five books that made up the word of God in the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books that make up the beginning of the Old Testament, the four gospels, and the book of Acts. Everything after that is a letter written to a church. So you have five unique books. So you have all these different things going on, all these different numbers involved. Um, And you can take that and study that and and think about that on your own. I want to review with you real quick these five ingredients or four of them that we've talked about and what they mean. The first one is the myrrh, and as we studied how they cultivate myrrh, myrrh comes from a gum tree, an Arabian gum tree. It's sort of the same way you could cultivate uh, maple syrup. You can put a spile into the tree and let it drain out, or you can put a bucket underneath it and let it drain into the bucket. That would take a very long time. And because they needed to commercially 
um, manufacture the myrrh instead of allowing it to drain out on its own, which is the most pure and perfect form. They would take these whip looking things like a cat of nine tails and they would literally beat the tree, scourge the tree, scar the tree and bleed the myrrh out of it. So we don't have to go into a whole lot more detail to understand that the myrrh represents the scourging and the persecution that Christ went through approaching the cross. That is ingredient number one of the anointing. He said, they've hated me, they'll hate you as well. If they persecute you, if they don't accept my gospel, it's not that they're rejecting you, it's that they're rejecting me, said Jesus Christ. But uh, you will be persecuted for my name's sake, and it counts it, uh, it counts it unto you as righteousness, things of that nature. Read the, uh, the entire Sermon on the Mount, and it'll, it'll reiterate over and over again that the fact of the matter is, if you're going to be a Christian, and you're going to be anointed, you're going to stir up the devil. And when you stir up the devil, he's going to persecute you. He doesn't come in physical form. He will use other people that are not at the moment walking in the spirit of Christ to bring that persecution to you. Now, that might have been a hard sell 30, 40 years ago. Um, Of course, I don't know what the atmosphere was exactly. But now it's a little bit more evident in America. You can't do it in the schools. You can't do it in public arenas. You can't be around the justice system. All of a sudden, true Christianity is persecuted to the point where we need to take the word God off the money. Or at least that's what they want. So all of those things are happening, and so we see the trueness of that story, but you have to accept that and be willing. If you want to be anointed, myrrh means you don't back down when the persecution comes. You continue to walk forward because that's part of the ingredient. That's part of the nature of being anointed. What are the benefits? A lot of benefits. Uh, ingredient number two, cinnamon. As we studied the cinnamon, we saw that it was called the sweet bark, and we look at how they cultivated the cinnamon, and it was very evident that the cinnamon represented the cross. The sweet bark, if you will, that Christ hung on. The way they cultivate the cinnamon, they reuse the trees over and over and over again. It's called coppicing, and you cannot tell how old a tree actually is. And in theory, you can continue to use it forever, and it never actually ages. So whenever we come to the cross, it represents salvation. It's that eternity. It's that eternal salvation. So the first thing is the scourging persecution. The next thing is the cross. Now, the cross represents death, but it also represents repentance because it is the altar where the blood was shed. Like in the Old Testament, the altar where the blood was shed was the altar of repentance. So first is the persecution. Second is a heart of repentance and death to your flesh or crucifixion. Calamus was the third ingredient. The calamus is a horizontal root that we studied. It always has to be slightly immersed in water, and that represents obviously baptism, but it also has a sweet savor. When the leaves grow out, they use the leaves, they bruise the leaves, they throw them on the ground. They used to put them in the, the, the soil that they would make the, uh, the, the inside of churches and sanctuaries out of back in the day, and every time they walked over it, it would release a sweet aroma. So it represents your walk, but specifically speaking, it represents your obedience. Because remember, baptism, it says, is not for the saving of the soul or the washing away of the sin, but it's an answer of a good conscience towards God. And the Bible tells us he'd rather have obedience than sacrifice. So if we're on our way to review and you're taking notes, it's the persecution, it's the death to self, it's the baptism, repentance baptism. Naturally, following the pattern of Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the Kesha represents uh, the Holy Ghost or the baptism thereof. The way that it represents that is it is a secondary type of cinnamon. At the cross, you receive his spirit through salvation. At the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you receive it on the outside. Uh, Kesha, whenever you buy cinnamon at the store, 99% of the time you're actually buying Kesha because real cinnamon is extremely hard to find. Uh, Kesha also has to be planted in water, but it grows up out of the water. So it's, not, it's no coincidence that it follows the calamus. You go down into the water, and it represents death. When you come back out of the water, it represents new life. 
and it comes right after baptism, Acts chapter 2, 38, is the Holy Spirit. It represents a double portion, if you will. It's the second time you receive the cinnamon. Does that make sense? So the, uh, okay, three people got it. So let's see, I'm pretty similar. I want you guys to explain it to everybody else after service. Um, the fifth and last ingredient, and I apologize for running through a lot of information. The last ingredient we're talking about today is the olive oil. I'm going to try to be as, as quick as possible um, running through the olive oil. If you will, let's, uh, let's jump over to Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Luke 22, 39 says, He came out and went as he was <clears throat> to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him, speaking about Jesus Christ. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast. He kneeled down and prayed, verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, verse number 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he was coming to his disciples. He found them sleeping for sorrow. So this is uh, his approach into the garden that we call Gethsemane. We're going to see the name Gethsemane used here in a minute. Gethsemane is at the base of the Mount of Olives. As he traveled to the Mount of Olives into the garden of Gethsemane, he knelt down and prayed, the Bible says, until, as it were, great drops of blood. That means that he got down on his, heads and knee, his, his hands and knees, and scientifically speaking, it is possible to enter into such a heavy and stressful moment in your life that literally capillaries can burst inside of your skin and through your pores, you can drip blood. So scientifically speaking, that's what happened. His prayer was a fervent prayer. His prayer was the type of prayer that if you walked in the back door of Mario's here, you walked into Edgewater Church and you saw Jesus Christ praying a Garden of Gethsemane prayer, you would find it was early lunchtime and you need to go. And you'd be asking the pastor later on, what is going on there? Was that God or was that the devil? Was somebody manifesting a demon or what was going on? Because it would have been uncomfortable. And I'm not trying to call the works of the Holy Ghost anything other than I'm talking about human reaction. If you were to to approach or see or be on the outside looking in as Jesus Christ knelt down and prayed, all we hear is, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Verse number 39, we're reading about Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's actually move it over to Mark chapter 14, verse number 32. Same story with a few different terms involved. Verse 32 says, they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I shall pray. Verse 35, he went forward a little and fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father... All things are possible unto you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. Um, the point that I want to make there is that he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're going to look at what that means here in a moment. Um, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was more than a simple, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. He fell down. If you read the entire story, he went back and checked on his disciples, and they were asleep, and he admonished them for sleeping. Then he came back, and he prayed again. He ended up having three separate times of prayer where he was falling down on his face, falling down on his knees, crying out to God. And you got to understand what he was praying about. This is Jesus Christ. He knew well what was waiting for him in the future. 
He knew well it was waiting for him just a few minutes down the road because it was in this very garden that the uh, that the soldiers were going to come forth and grab him and take him as one of his disciples that he poured his life into, betrayed him with a kiss. They were going to grab him and begin the scourging, begin the beating, begin the four-day trial that would ultimately lead to his untimely death, but actually perfectly timed death in the eyes of God on the cross. So this is not something um, that he was ignorant of, and it is not something that was easy to approach. So I, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but I know that when I was younger, I certainly did, that uh, it was terrible that Jesus Christ was innocent and that he was crucified and that he died. But at the same time, we look at him as God and he would have this understanding that he was going to rise again, that he could overcome, that at any time he could call down angels. And, and somehow in my mind, I, I thought to lessen uh, the ordeal of what he actually went through. But as you get a little bit older and you walk through life, you realize, you know what? It's, uh, it's not enough to know how bad something is going to be, nor is it enough to know how good that it could be on the other end if you make it through. The fact of the matter is, when it hurts, it hurts. And the fact of the matter is, what he was going through was uncalled for, and it actually makes it worse that he had the power at any time to stop it, but decided not to. That makes it a more difficult trial, a more difficult ordeal. We've all been through things, I'm sure, that we would rather not have gone through. But how much more difficult would it be if right in the middle of that time in your life, right in the middle of that debacle, you had the power to say, you know what? I'm done. We're done. We're stopping it right here because I have the authority here. I've decided it hurts too much. I'm not going through it. It's not worth it. He had that power, yet he continued on. That doesn't make it easier. That makes it harder. It was quite an ordeal. So don't ever let yourself be convinced that he simply walked into the Garden of Gethsemane, got down on his hands and knees and had some quiet prayer time and said, Father, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It was much more fervent than that. It was more akin to the prayer that you just saw, but even to a more fervent degree. I don't know what other words to use. But it's interesting that he was at the base of the Mount of Olives And he walked into a garden called Gethsemane. Remember, we're talking about the fifth ingredient of the olive oil. You're about to see some crazy things. I want to preface it um, with a little bit of understanding real briefly. We're going to do a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of Bible math and a little bit of Hebrew. So I want everybody to take a deep breath. Get your thinking caps on. Get ready to learn. Is it okay if we learn? Are we allowed to learn in church? Learn learn a little bit? Okay. It's going to be a review for some of you. For some of you, it will not be. We're about to take a... uh, an endeavor into a very unique word in this word Gethsemane. It's unique because it has a Greek connotation and it has a Greek definition, but it is not a Greek word. It is a Hebrew word. So you have to first take the Greek word, look at the definition, but then you have to backtrack and figure out what is this word in Hebrew and how does it change or magnify the definition of the word itself. So where do we start? Um, I want to I I tell you briefly a little bit about, about the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language is an alphabet based on 22 letters. It is no coincidence that it is 22 letters long. It is 22 letters long because that is how God ordained it to be. Remember in the beginning, God spoke things into existence. He said, let there be and there was. Well, naturally it would follow. If he spoke it into existence, he had to use words. If he had to use words, he had to use letters. If he had to use letters, he had to have an alphabet. The alphabet that he chose, the one that he created, is what we know as the Hebrew alphabet. When he did that, He made it exactly 22 letters long. 
Perhaps it has something to do, but maybe not, with the fact that there are 22 necessary amino acids inside the human body in order for us to have the building blocks of protein, which ends up giving us life. Perhaps when he spoke us into existence, it took all 22 letters. Maybe that's a stretch. Maybe it's not. But there's a lot of different reasons uh, we're going to see here, hopefully in a moment, why he chose the number 22. But what I want you to realize right now is that the Hebrew language has always had attached to it every single letter has a word picture, a symbolic meaning, a literal meaning, and a number attached to it. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. It is shaped like an ox. In book type, it doesn't look like that. But in Paleo-Hebrew, the original was shaped like an ox. So the word picture is ox. Ox means head and strong. So the symbolic meaning is head and strong. The literal meaning is strong leader. And the number is one because it's the first letter. Now, it follows that pattern until the 10th letter, then it counts by 10s. The next letter has a value of 20, 30, 40, all the way through 100, and then 100, 200, 300, 400. We're not going to get into the numeric values. I just want to give you an idea of how intricate this language is. So there are Hebrew words that have meaning called gematria, and then there are Hebrew letters that magnify the meaning of the word. What you're going to see here is, I think, an amazing thing. Stay with me. We're talking about the olive oil. We're talking about the fifth ingredient. When you look up the word Gethsemane in Hebrew, it means olive press. So when Jesus Christ is approaching uh, this time in his life, this trial, this prayer, he walks into the base of the Mount of Olives, a garden called the olive press. And as he walks into that olive press, he is pressured if you will, with the stress of the situation to the point where his capillaries burst and his prayer becomes as great drops of blood upon the ground. Now remember, ingredient number one, the myrrh and the anointing oil, naturally um, exudes from the tree, but in order to manufacture it, they beat and whip and scourge and scar the tree to, to only get what the tree was going to give them anyway. So here you have Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ means anointed. Everybody say anointed. He is in the garden of the olive press, and he is praying so hard that he produces, if you will, the myrrh that they are going to manufacture later, but he's already giving the most pure form in the garden. Why did he do that? Perhaps it's because the Bible says that there was a first Adam that disobeyed God inside of a garden and got kicked out and had to work the ground by the sweat of his brow. And then there's a second Adam who is called Jesus Christ, who obeyed God inside of a garden. And instead of the sweat of the brow, which was a a production of the curse, the sweat of his brow turned into blood, which redeemed us from the curse. So maybe that's why there's more and more that goes into that but here he is in a garden he's being pressured so hard that the olive oil the myrrh the anointing is seeping from his pores and it gives us an idea i want to read to you about how they cultivated olive oil back in the day the process required getting an olive it's painful and it's intense the trunk of the tree would be shaken the branches would be beat with sticks until the olives fall uh, would fall to the ground Then the olives would be beaten and smashed until the liquid would run out and the oil was used to dress wounds in the Jewish tradition to anoint objects, vessels, to be earmarked to use the glory of God. If you go inside the Garden of Gethsemane, which we went in 2003, you see a uh, what's called an olive press inside the garden. And it looks like sort of a a birdbath style thing, if you will. Uh, But it has uh, no indentation for water and for birds to hang out and it's just flat. And then on top of it, it has a huge stone. And what they would do, and it has a circle in the middle like a drain, and what they would do is they would put olives on top of that slab, and then they would just roll the stone over the olives until it would press and crush the oil out of them. You've said, I am a Christian. 
You've said, I'm anointed. You've said, I desire to be anointed. What I'm saying is there's a price to pay. There's something that comes along with that. You can either approach Christianity as the most, the most righteous and holy country club atmosphere that could be produced, or you can approach Christianity with the idea that, you know what, I have 20,000-something days max on this earth. If I'm a little bit older, I'm already into 10,000 or less. And with those 10,000 days or less, I don't want to just come to church on Sunday. I don't want to just come on Wednesday. I don't want to just come every month. I don't just want to help build a country club. But I want to know, what can God do through me? What can't God do through me? As long as I'm going to give my entire life over to Him, I want Him to use me. I want to walk in that power. I want to shake the earth. I want to be a witness. I want souls to be saved but he that wins souls is wise and if you're a wise man you will do your best to walk underneath the anointing and the power of god but if you do that you will be persecuted you will be crushed you will be beaten you will be bruised but it'll be worth it it lets you know that you're alive it lets you know that you're walking with god and the pain so to speak that you go through let me tell you a little secret you can throw God to the side and decide to never live for him for one day. And what's going to happen is from now until your last day on this earth, you're still going to suffer. You're still going to go through painful events. You're still going to go through tragedy. So I don't want you to walk away from the sermon with the idea that because I live for God, I'm going to go through a painful ordeal in order just to be anointed. It's not that God is saying, hey, you've given your life to me. Hey, you've decided to serve me. I'm going to hurt you a little bit. What God is saying is you're going to be hurt anyway. You're going to go through things anyway. You're going to find pain in this life anyway because Adam and Eve decided to eat the fruit of the tree. And we can explain that some other time. But because that happened, sin is here. It's sitting at the doorstop. It's bringing pain into your life. And instead of that pain being worthless, I want to cultivate that pain. I want to pick that pain up for you. I want to turn it into something else. I want to wrap it up, put it in a box, put a ball on it, deliver it back to your doorstep. And when you open it up, instead of hurt and agony, it says, anointing because the pain's coming anyway so here he is praying until it were great drops of blood and he's in a place called the oil press the garden of gethsemane now we know what it means in hebrew i'm sorry in greek but what it means in hebrew i want to show you ted if you'd put that chart up on the screen for us real quick. We're going to look at all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Of course, we're only going to look at the ones that spell Gethsemane. But I want you to see it for yourself so you know that I'm not making this up. The God that you serve is a prophetic God. He knows exactly what he's doing. The Bible says that Christ was crucified for you and me before the foundations of the earth. If that is true, that's an amazing book. If that is true, we serve an amazing God. But I want to use uh, Gethsemane this morning to prove to you that the book that you are reading, the gospel that we are preaching is not normal. It is nothing that can be found in any other book on any other place on the face of the earth. It's not equal distant letter spacing. You can get into Bible codes and things if you want. And I think there's some validity to that. That can be uh, transcribed. That can be uh, debated. This cannot. What you're seeing here on the left side are the objects, the hieroglyphs, if you will, of the Paleo-Hebrew that have since been changed the shape of them to look more like letters so they can write in you know normal uh, textbook style. But this is what they... Oh, here you go on the right-hand side. That's what they look like now. But this is how they started out. So I'm going to spell Gethsemane for you real quick. Third letter down that looks like an L. 
You see the G over here in the English type? That is the Hebrew letter Gimel. Gimel gives you the G sound. The next sound that you give, so there are no vowels in Hebrew. The next sound that you get is the TH. Down here it says T, but literally it says TH is, is this, the, the actual sound that it makes. It's called the Tav. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Gimel and Tav spell Gath, or how you would say in English. So you have to carry, and you have the sign of two cross sticks. That's Gath. The next part of the Hebrew word is Simony. starts with the Sheen. The sheen is over here where you see the S, uh, not the last letter, but right above it. And it says, sharp, press, eat to. Let me, let me tell you one thing that you have to understand about the Hebrew alphabet as well. Because there are multiple uh, meanings, symbolically and literally, to each letter. What you have to do is you have to approach it like you just found a, like you're approaching a wall covered in ivy. And you've removed the ivy and you've seen a secret door, if you will. And on the ground, there are three or four keys. You take each key and you try it in the keyhole on the door, and only one of them works, only one of them opens the door. The way that you know you have the right key is that it fits, and it opens the door. So the way that you know you're interpreting a Hebrew word or letter correctly is the door is already here. The door is Gethsemane. The story is what lies behind it, which you've already read in Luke chapter 22. Now we need to take the letters and what they mean and figure out which key fits. Does that make sense? So when you're looking at the sheen, means the press or sharp or eater two. And the next word is the, the next letter is the mem. You see the M up here. It means chaos, mighty or blood. And the last word is right below it. The last letter, I'm sorry, the N means continue air or sun. So if you're trying to put the key together to fit the door hole, guess what Gethsemane has means, has meant, I'm sorry, since the beginning of time, long before Jesus Christ was ever born. Guess how you would interpret that? If you take all the letters to spell Gethsemane. It means to carry forth the sign of two cross sticks, press blood from the sun. That's what it's always meant. Thousands of years later, the Son of God walks into a garden, gets down on his hands and knees and begins to pray until the pressure, praise God, until the pressure bursts capillaries in his forehead and presses blood out of his very pores. To carry forth the sign of two cross sticks, press blood from the sun. The olive oil, the fifth ingredient. By British Imperial liquid standards, it measures 6.6 pints. That's what one hen is when you read in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, one hen, I'm not familiar with the hen, I know you're not familiar with the hen, H-I-N. The way you would measure that is with the British empirical unit for dry and liquid measure, and it equals 6.6 liters. Why is that important? Just so happens to be that the book of Acts is the 44th book in the Bible. The book of Revelation is the 66th book of the Bible. Every book in between Acts all the way to Revelation is called an epistle, which is an old school word for letter. So in between 44 and 66, there are 22 letters to make up the birth of the church in the book of Acts to the end of the church in the book of Revelation. 22 letters, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Those 22 letters God has used to produce his word, which happens to be 66 books long. 66 books long, one hint of olive oil is 6.6 British empirical units. If that's too much of a stretch for you, the olive oil was used to light the menorah, the menorah in the Old Testament. The menorah had seven branches. This is where we're going to get in some Bible math real quick. Each branch had three bowls. Uh, That's three plus three plus three on one side. That's six. Three plus three plus three on the other side is six. Each bowl had uh, three knobs and uh, 
three uh, almond type things. Let me just read it because I'm making myself sound stupid. Uh, three bowls made like unto almonds with a knob and a flower in each branch, and three bowls made like an almond in the other branch with a knob and a flower. So each branch, of which you have six, has nine parts. Three, six, nine, right? Three bowls, three parts. Each branch has nine parts total. Nine times three is 27. Nine times three on the other side is 27. And then we read to you about the middle one, the seventh candle. Each side branch has three sets of three items, three bowls, each with a knob and a flower. The central branch has four sets of the same three items. Thus, the numerical arrangement of these decorations follow a symmetric pattern. Nine plus nine plus nine plus 12 plus nine plus nine plus nine. In other words, nine times six, which is 54. You guys went to Santa Fe. Nine times six took a little while. Is 54. 54 plus 12. Somebody that went to Dickinson. 54 plus 12. 66. So there are 66 parts to the menorah, which was given in the book of Exodus. God gave the instructions on how to build the menorah. The olive oil of 6.6 British empirical units runs through the 66 parts of the menorah. And the Bible says in the book of, uh, in the book of Psalms 119 verse 105, thy word, O God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That lamp and that light was the menorah, always had 66 parts. The Bible ended up having 66 books. If that's not enough, you can take 9 plus 9 plus 9 plus 12, which is one side of the menorah. That equals 39. Happens to be 39 books in the Old Testament. That leaves you 9 plus 9 plus 9, which is 27. Happens to be 27 books in the New Testament. So it works out exactly the way that it's supposed to. The light unto your path, the lamp unto your feet, was always lit by the olive oil, was always going to have 66 books, was always going to have 6.6 parts, was always going to bring you into the garden, was always going to pressure you was always going to bring you the persecution, was always going to take the pain and the stress and everything vile in this life and turn it into something beautiful. That's why the word of God says, from the ashes, he shall bring forth beauty. You want to be anointed? Let's get our worship team up here this morning. If you want to be anointed, there are five parts. The myrrh, the cinnamon, the calamus, the acacia, and the olive oil. Olive oil doesn't have a huge odor. The other four ingredients do. They're all called sweet spices, which is why we titled this series The Scent of the Anointing. Every part of this oil has a medicinal value, a very strong medicinal value. Every part of this oil is sweet. Every part of this oil smells good. What we long for in this life is the application of the oil. Remember, Jesus said, if I speak to you about earthly things and you do not understand them, how can I possibly teach you of heavenly things? I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you as you stand to your feet. Don't just be a churchgoer. Don't just be a member of an organization. Don't just be part of the American church. And don't just be a Christian per se. Make an effort in 2014 to be anointed. Make an effort in 2014 to be anointed. Make an effort to walk in the anointing. Y'all aren't hearing me. I've got to remind you earlier, the spirit of God spoke to us and said, 
If you want a fellowship with me, if you want a relationship with me, if you want to see me do my thing, if you want to see me work in your life, if you want to walk in the miraculous and the powerful and you want to be more than just a once a month or every other week type of Christian and you want to walk in the anointing, I have one secret to tell you. The kingdom of God is within you. Amen. I said the kingdom of God is within you. Do not just be a Christian in 2014. Be anointed. Amen. Why? Because all things are possible through the anointing and the anointed one, which strengthens me. Are you with me this morning?